0: Hello, this is R.J. Deacon, the Supreme Court of the United States opinion in Biden versus Missouri Um, on application for stays 13 January 2022. That's a per curiam opinion. If you'd like to support the podcast, please stay tuned to the end of the podcast. This would be a good one to support because it's going to be a long reading. The Secretary of Health and Human Services administers the Medicare and Medicaid programs, which provide health insurance for millions of elderly, disabled, and low-income Americans. In November of 2021, the Secretary announced that in order to receive Medicare and Medicaid funding, participating facilities must ensure that their staff, unless exempt for medical or religious reasons, are vaccinated against COVID-19. It's 86 Federal Register, 61555, two district courts enjoined enforcement of the rule, and the government now asks us to stay those injunctions. Agreeing that it is entitled to such relief, we grant the applications. Uh, and this is a uh, section 1A here. The Medicare program provides health insurance to individuals 65 and older, as well as those with specified disabilities. The Medicaid program is the same for those with low incomes. Both Medicare and Medicaid are administered by the Secretary of Health and Human Services, who has general statutory authority to promulgate regulations, quote, as may be necessary to the efficient administration of the functions with which he is charged, end quote, 42 U.S.C. Section 1302, little a. One such function, perhaps the most basic given the department's core mission, is to ensure that the health care providers who care for Medicare and Medicaid patients protect their patients' health and safety. Such providers include hospitals, nursing homes, ambulatory surgical centers, hospices, rehabilitation facilities, and more. To that end, Congress authorized the Secretary to promulgate, as a condition of a facility's participation in the program's, Such requirements as he finds necessary in the interests of the health and safety of individuals who are furnished services in the institution. And there's uh, multiple United States code sections for each um, type of um, service provider. Relying on these authorities, the Secretary has established long lists of detailed conditions with which facilities must comply to be eligible to receive Medicare and Medicaid funds. Again, a couple of CFR sections for um, hospitals, long-term care facilities, ambulatory surgical centers. Such conditions have long included a requirement that certain providers maintain and enforce an infection prevention and control program designed to help prevent the development and tr- transmission of communicable diseases and infections. Section 483.80. Oh, that's uh, another. It's listing long-term care facilities, hospitals, ambulatory surgical centers, facilities that provide outpatient physical therapy, and speech-language pathology services. Each have their own little section. Now we're on to B. On November 5th, 2021, the Secretary issued an interim final rule amending the existing conditions of participation in Medicare and Medicaid to add a new requirement, that facilities ensure that their covered staff are vaccinated against COVID-19, 86 Federal Register 61561 and six sixteen to six twenty seven. The rule requires providers to offer medical and religious exemptions and does not cover staff who telework full-time. That's the same at 61571 to 61572. A facility's failure to comply may lead to monetary penalties, denial of payment for new admissions, and ultimately termination of participation in the programs at 61574. The secretary issued the rule after finding that vaccination of healthcare workers against COVID-19 was necessary for the health and safety of individuals to whom care and services are furnished, at 61561. In many facilities, 35% or more of staff remain unvaccinated, at 61559, and those staffs, the secretary explained, pose a serious threat to the health and safety of patients. That determination was based on data showing that COVID-19 virus can spread rapidly among healthcare workers from them and from them to patients, and that such spread is more likely when healthcare workers are unvaccinated at 61, 558, uh, 61, 61, 567 through 68, and 61, 585 through 586. He also explained that because Medicare and Medicaid patients are often elderly disabled or otherwise in poor health transmission of COVID-19 to such patients is particularly dangerous at 61566 and 61609 in addition to the threat posed by in-facility transmission itself the secretary also found that fear of exposure to the virus from unvaccinated healthcare staff can lead patients to themselves forgo seeking medically necessary care Creating further risk to patient health and safety. 61588. He further noted that staffing shortages caused by COVID 19 related exposures or illnesses has di- disrupted patient care. At 61559, the Secretary issued the rule as an interim final rule, rather than through the typical notice and comment procedures, after finding good cause that it should be made effective immediately. Um, 61583 to 586, and CUSC 553 little b cap b. That good cause was, in short, the Secretary's belief that any further delay would endanger patient health and safety given the spread of the Delta variant and the upcoming winter season. 86 Federal Register 61583 to 586. Now we're on to C. Shortly after the interim rules announcement, two groups of states, one led by Louisiana and one by Missouri, filed separate actions challenging the rule. The U.S. District Courts for the Western District of Louisiana and the Eastern District of Missouri each found the rule defective and entered preliminary injunctions against its enforcement. It's uh, Louisiana versus Becerra and Missouri versus Biden. In each case, the government moved for stay of the injunction from the relevant Court of Appeals. In Louisiana, the Fifth Circuit denied the government's motion. In Missouri, the Eighth Circuit did so as well. The governments filed applications asking us to stay both district courts' preliminary injunctions, and we heard expedited argument on its requests. On to uh, 2 and A. First, we agree with the government that the Secretary's rule falls within the authorities that Congress has conferred upon him. Congress has authorized the Secretary to impose conditions on the receipt of Medicaid and Medicare funds that the Secretary finds necessary in the interests of the health and safety of individuals who are furnished services. 42 U.S.C. Section 1395X little e 9. COVID-19 is a highly contagious dangerous, and especially for Medicare and Medicaid patients, deadly disease. The Secretary of Health and Human Services determined that a COVID-19 vaccine mandate will substantially reduce the likelihood that healthcare workers will contract the virus and transmit it to their patients. 86 Federal Register 61557-558 He accordingly concluded that the vaccine mandate is necessary to promote and protect patient health and safety, in the face of the ongoing pandemic it's uh, at 61613 the rule thus fits neatly within the language of the statute after all ensuring that providers take steps to avoid transmitting a dangerous virus to their patients is consistent with the fundamental principle of the medical profession first do no harm it would be the very opposite of efficient and effective administration for a facility that is supposed to make people well to make them sick with COVID-19. As quoting Florida Department of Health and Human Services, um, the states and Justice Thomas offer a narrower view of the various authorities at issue, contending that the seemingly broad language cited above authorizes the secretary to impose no more than a list of bureaucratic rules regarding the technical administration of medicare and medicaid but the long standing practice of the health and human services of health and human services in implementing the relevant statutory authorities tells a different story as noted above healthcare facilities that wish to participate in medicare and medicaid have always been obliged to satisfy a host of conditions that address the safe and effective provision of healthcare not simply sound accounting. Such requirements govern in detail, for, for instance, the amount of time after admission or surgery within which a hospital patient must be examined and by whom, 42 CFR, section 482.22, little c5, the procurement, transportation, and transplantation of human kidneys, livers, hearts, lungs, and pancreases, Section 482.45, the tasks that may be delegated by a physician to a physician assistant or nurse practitioner, 483.30 little e, and most pertinent here, the programs that hospitals must implement to govern the surveillance, prevention, and control of infectious diseases, section 482.42. Moreover, the secretary and Routinely imposes conditions of participation that relate to the qualifications and duties of healthcare workers themselves. See, for example, sections 482.42 little c two iv requiring training of hospital personnel and staff on infection prevention and control guidelines, and 483.60 little a one ii qualified dietitians must have completed at least 900 hours of supervised practice. Uh, 482. 26 little b through little c, specifying personnel authorized to use radiologic equipment. And the secretary has always justified these sorts of requirements by citing his authorities to protect patient health and safety. See, for example, sections 482.1 little a, 1, i, I 483.1 little a, 1, i, i, for 16.1 little a, 1. As these examples illustrate, the Secretary's role in administering Medicare and Medicaid goes far beyond that of a mere bookkeeper. Indeed, respondents do not contest the validity of this long standing litany of health related participation conditions. When asked at oral argument whether the Secretary could, using the very same statutory authorities at issue here, require hospital employees to wear gloves, Sterilize instruments, wash their hands in a certain way, and at certain intervals, and then the and the like. Missouri answered, "Yes, the secretary certainly has the authority to implement all kinds of infection control measures at these facilities." Uh, That's the transcript of oral argument at fifty-seven and fifty-eight. Of course, the vaccine mandate goes further than what the secretary has done in the past to implement infection control but he has never had to address an infection problem of this scale and scope before. In any event, there can be no doubt that addressing infection problems in Medicare and Medicaid facilities is what he does, and his response is not a surprising one. Vaccination requirements are a common feature of the provision of healthcare care in America. Healthcare workers around the country are ordinarily required to be vaccinated for diseases, such as hepatitis B, influenza, the measles, mumps, rubella, CDC, state healthcare worker, and patient vaccination laws from February 28, 2018, and there's a uh, website there. As the Secretary explained, these pre-existing state requirements are a major reason the agency has not previously adopted vaccine mandates as a condition of, condition of participation. Eighty-six Federal Register, 61-567 to 68. All this is perhaps why healthcare workers and public health organizations overwhelmingly support the Secretary's rule. Uh, see Federal Register at 61-565 to 66. See also brief for American Medical Association as Amikai Kurei brief for American Public Health Association as Amikai Curiae. brief for Secretaries of Health and Human Services as Amikai Curie. Indeed, their support suggests that vaccination requirements under these circumstances is a straightforward and predictable example of the health and safety regulations that Congress has authorized the secretary to impose. We accordingly conclude that the secretary did not exceed his statutory authority in requiring that In order to remain eligible for Medicare and Medicaid dollars, the facilities covered by the interim rule must ensure that their employees be vaccinated against COVID-19. And now we're on to B. We also disagree with respondents' remaining contentions in support of the injunctions entered below. First, the interim rule is not arbitrary and capricious. Given the rulemaking record, it cannot be maintained that the secretary failed to examine the relevant data and articulate a satisfactory explanation for his decisions to, one, impose the vaccine mandate instead of a testing mandate, and two, require vaccination of employees with natural immunity from prior COVID-19 illness, and three, depart from the agency's prior approach of merely encouraging vaccination. That's uh, Motor Vehicle Manufacturers Association of the United States' Versus State Farm Mutual Automobile Insurance. See 86 Federal Register 61583, 61559, 269, and 61614. Nor is it the case that the Secretary entirely failed to consider that the rule might cause staffing shortages, including in rural areas. Uh, that's quoting State Farm again and the Federal Register. I'm probably going to stop reading those numbers. Mm -hmm. As to the additional flaws, the district court found in the secretary's analysis, particularly concerning the nature of the data relied upon, the role of courts in reviewing arbitrary and capricious challenges is to simply ensure that the agency has acted within a zone of reasonableness. That's FCC versus Prometheus radio project. Other statutory objections to the rule fare no better. First, Justice Alito takes issue with the Secretary's finding of good cause to delay notice and comment. But the Secretary's finding that accelerated promulgation of the rule in advance of the winter flu season would significantly reduce, reduce COVID-19 infections, hospitalizations, and deaths, uh, that's the Federal Register again, constitutes the something specific um, required to forego notice and comment. and. We cannot say that in this instance, the two months the agency took to prepare a 73-page rule constitutes delay inconsistent with the secretary's finding of good cause. Second, we agree with the secretary that he was not required to consult with appropriate state agencies, 42 U.S.C. Section 1395Z, in advance of issuing the interim rule, consistent with the existence of good cause exception, which was properly invoked here, consultation during the deferred notice and comment period is permissible. We similarly concur with the secretary that he need not prepare a regulatory impact analysis discussing a rule's effect on small rural hospitals when he acts through an interim final rule. That requirement applies only where the secretary proceeds on the basis of a notice of proposed rulemaking, that's Section 1302B1, followed by a final version of the rule Section 1302, little b2. Lastly, the rule does not run afoul of the directive in Section 1395 that federal officials may not exercise any supervision or control over the manner in which medical services are provided or over the selection or tenure of any officer or employee of any facility. That reading of Section 1395 would mean that nearly every condition of participation the secretary has long insisted upon Is unlawful. And there's a little break there. The challenges posed by a global pandemic do not allow a federal agency to exercise power that Congress has not conferred upon it. At the same time, such unprecedented circumstances provide no grounds for limiting the exercise of authorities the agency has long been recognized to have. Because the latter principle governs in these cases, The applications for a stay presented to Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh, and by them referred to the court, are granted. The District Court for the Eastern District of Missouri's uh, November 29, 2021 order granting a preliminary injunction is stayed pending disposition of the government's appeal in the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit and the disposition of the government's petition for a writ of certiorari if such writ is timely sought. Should the petition for a writ of certiorari be denied, this order shall terminate automatically. In the event the petition for a writ of certiorari is granted, the court shall terminate the, the order shall terminate upon the sending down of the judgment of this court. The District Court for the Western District of Louisiana's November 30th, 2021 order granting a preliminary injunction is stayed pending disposition of the government's appeal in the United States Court of Appeals for the 5th Circuit. And the disposition of the government's petition for a writ of certiorari, if such writ is timely sought. Should the petition for a writ of certiorari be denied, this order shall terminate automatically. In the event the petition for a writ of certiorari is granted, the order shall terminate upon the sending down of the judgment of this court. It is so ordered. And again, that was a per curiam opinion. Uh, Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can find a... um, PayPal link in the show notes. You can contact me for uh, more information at RhodesScholar80 at gmail.com. That's R-O-A-D-S and the number 80. Or you can find me on uh, Patreon. Uh, Thanks for listening.